the junk food cycle is an interaction between appetite and the commercial incentives of companies. And we're now seeing the first of what will be a huge wave of appetite suppressant drugs. And it makes people eat less. And And I can see a world in which the government doesn't fix the underlying problem, which is the swamp. They just drug us all to be immune to it. You're listening to The Full English, the show that looks at who we are by thinking about what we eat. In this episode, I'm speaking to Henry Dimbleby about Ravenous, a book all about the connections between food, health and the environment, which Henry co-authored with Jemima Lewis. Prior to writing Ravenous, Henry was tasked by the Conservative government in 2019 with producing a national food strategy. His report was published in 2021. However, many of its urgent recommendations have so far been ignored. The interview you're about to hear is really wide-ranging, reflecting the contents of Henry's book. If you'd like me to cover some of these issues in far greater detail in future episodes, then why not go to patreon.com forward slash full English and support the show with £3 a month. And please, if you like this episode, then share it. The Full English is produced by me, Lewis Bassett. Mixing and sound design comes from Forest DLG. Henry, thank you so much for joining me on the Full English Podcast. Um, let's start with the big picture of our food system. Um, and I'm interested in if you can kind of talk about what are the consequences of the way we eat, both for our personal health and for environmental health. If you can kind of paint in kind of broad brushstrokes a picture of our food system right now. Sure. Well, I actually think you have to go slightly further back because we have a, our food system is by any measure a disaster and we can talk about that. But... The reason it's a disaster is because we solved another problem. So after the war, there were 2.5 billion people on the planet. And scientists looking forward thought that was going to swell to 8 billion. Mm-hmm. And in the, the, you know, since 10,000 BC, the Holocene, this period of stable climate where agriculture became possible, as the human population increased, we dug up more land to feed ourselves. There wasn't going to be enough land to feed us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... All the papers in the late 40s, early 50s were full of these stories of Malthusian collapse. We're not going to have enough food to feed ourselves. We're going to be starved. And along came Norman Borlaug, this botanist from Idaho who'd grown up during the Depression. He had seen hunger close up. He'd seen food riots, starvation. And he set himself on a mission to enable the planet to eat. And he ended up in Mexico towards the end of the war breeding a new kind of wheat and he was successful and that wheat which we now all the wheat that we see we see anywhere is this kind of wheat which is short-stemmed heavy-headed resistant to wheat rust Uh, and that that breeding experiment was repeated with maize and with rice and we now grow almost twice the number of calories per person on the planet uh, for 8 billion people than we did from 2.5 billion people back in 1945. Mm -hmm. It's, by any measure, an extraordinary human success story. But... And there's a but. There's a but. So, (laughs) on focusing just on the calories Mm. per hectare of land that you could produce, the the food we eat, the food system, has come to completely dominate nature. So, the food we eat is 
by far the biggest cause of biodiversity collapse. Mm -hmm. It is by far the biggest cause of water shortage, of water pollution, of deforestation, of the loss of aquatic life. And after energy, it is the biggest cause of climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the planet that it is destroying. Uh, and by the way, to give you a sense of the scale of it, the animals that we grow to eat now at any one time weigh twice as much as all humans and 20 times as much as all wild animals, just mm. to give a scale of the food system. Uh, and it's not only that, that it's destroying the environment, it is destroying our health. So by 2035 in this country, type 2 diabetes is projected to cost the NHS more than all cancers cost to treat today. Chris Whitty was during lockdown, in his spare time, lecturing online to anyone who would listen about the, the catastrophe that diet-related disease is about to, to present. And Andy Haldane, the, the former chief economist at the Bank of England, uh, has been giving talks about how disease, uh, non-communicable disease, lifestyle disease, is the, thing, the one thing that's holding the economy back. So unless we fix that, we end up both sick and impoverished. So the food system, which is such an abstract thing, mm actually sits behind two of the greatest things that we now need to to resolve today. We you know we solved a big problem and we caused two other big problems, as you often do, and now we need to solve those. Yeah, the clever thing about your book, I think, is that you weave together both these problems, these big issues, climate change and public health, in, within the same narrative, and, you, and some of the solutions are the same for both. Um, and the other brilliant thing about your book, which you just gave a taste of there, is it's just full of these amazing statistics. Um, one of the statistics that you mentioned is that, um, that you say, and I quote, the average five-year-old in the UK is shorter than their peers in nearly all other high-income countries. I just find that really hard to believe. Like, British people are typically taller than maybe everyone else in Europe other than the Dutch. And you're saying that at the age of five, on yeah. average, we're, we're shorter. Why is that? And how is that our, the case? Our girls are the second shortest and our boys are the shortest of all of the richest countries. And we have this extraordinary, I mean, it's kind of brilliant achievement in some ways is we are not only the fattest, we have not only the fattest children, we have the shortest children because we are eating too many calories mm -hmm. and not enough nutrients. And, you know, that is, I mean, you, you would have thought you would have had to quite, try quite hard to achieve that, but that's what we've achieved. And you, you see it, you know, the, 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 the uh, people talk about um, the invisible hungry, you know, science, invisible hunger, which is hunger of nutrients. Mm. And we're, we're getting, you know, we, doctors are now, I mean, we're, we're recording this in, in Hackney at the Homerton Hospital around the corner. Doctors are now talking about the kind of re the recurrence of Victorian diseases, like rickets are coming back. I mean, this is a global problem, but it's also quite bad in the UK, right? That's kind of what you're saying, uh, in the UK and the US. Yeah, so we are the, other than Malta, Mm. We are the European leaders in these diseases, mm. closely followed by Germany. Um, globally, the US, and we talk a bit about that in the book, gives us a little glimpse into what our future might look like if we don't, don't get on top of this. And these issues, they're not evenly spread. I mean, there is evenly spread the extent to which, uh, as a nation, we're becoming more and more obese, um, more and more unhealthy. 
but it's not so when you get into it, it's not so evenly spread. You talk quite a lot in the book about um, food inequality, about food deserts. Could you say a little about that, how, how these kind of impacts are, are kind of spread out amongst our communities? Yeah, so both the environmental and the health harms are disproportionately visited on those living in poverty. Mm -hmm. So if you take health, uh, it is a problem across society now. It is not, you know, some people say, well, this is just a problem of poverty. That's not true. Diet, type 2 diabetes is, is rampant in every demographic. Mm. But if you look at any of the metrics, whether that is height, childhood obesity, dental decay, cardiovascular disease, life expectancy, it is much more concentrated in those living in poverty. If you are in the least affluent 10% of postcodes, you now live on average seven years less long than the most affluent. And in fact, you live less long than you did 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So our life expectancy for, for the least affluent is actually going backwards in this country. And then if you look at the environmental side of it, uh, climate change and the biodiversity collapse are being felt most acutely in countries that are in the southern hemisphere largely and are less affluent so all of this is being felt by the people who already have the worst lot mm. some people would say that in the answer to all of these problems is uh, individual responsibility whether it comes to our bodily health or our environmental health um and you make almost the opposite case like a key theme in your book is that there's almost no such thing as free will in the kind of food system that we live in i think you say something like we're prisoners of the food system um why is it not the case that simply individuals have changed their habits they've changed their diets and the solution is therefore that individuals need to do that do so again well it's interesting that narrative is kind of all enveloping and in fact even those who are suffering think it's their fault mm. and the sun kind of summed it up it had a the sun newspaper had a sun says in typically trenchant style when uh boris johnson who was then in power kicked the restrictions on advertising of junk food to children something by the way that is just wildly popular with the electorate <laughs> but he kicked it into the long grass till 2025 and the sun said quite right less of this nonsense nanny statism let's go back to common sense measures like uh, education and exercise mm. now the problem with those is you might want that to be the solution but it demonstrably isn't so we know that people know what to eat so you can do surveys everyone knows they should be eating their five a day they should be eating better and we actually know and we can go into this you want that exercise is fantastic for almost everything related to your health, it just happens to be lousy for getting you to lose weight. Um, so what is actually going on is that food companies, we have a very powerful appetite that has evolved in a time when there were calories, scarcity was the problem. And it gives you very strong dopamine responses for food that is highly dense in calories, uh, that is high in sugar and fat, and... If you eat that food and it's low in insoluble fiber, you eat more of it, it fills you up less quickly. And food companies have noticed that, commercially noticed it. They've spent more and more of their money researching and developing those foods. We eat more, they spend more, and we get fat and mm -hmm. sick. We call this the junk food cycle. And, you know, in 1950, 1% of us were 
were fat, obese. Now it's almost a third. Mm-hmm. And to people, so there is a big bell curve in terms of how susceptible. This is about 70% of overweight is genetic and about 30% is the environment. And there are pe- some people seem to be, the bell curve is stretching out. So there are some genes, it's got a big tongue going to the right, if you can imagine it on the bell curve. So some genes are much more susceptible to the food environment. And I like to say to people who, who are on the left of that bell curve, who are often the ones who kind of say, well, if everyone was just like me, we'd be all right. Just imagine what it feels like you know, if you haven't eaten for two days. Mm-hmm. It becomes quite hard to resist food. So imagine if your hunger worked slightly differently to how it does, your appetite. Mm-hmm. And we give the example of the book of the, of the rugby players, the Chilean rugby players, flying back from a, a tournament in Uruguay and crash in the Andes and surviving the crash and then surviving for several weeks by eating the body of their friends and families. You know, appetite will make you do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want it to go wrong. And appetite has clearly demonstrably gone wrong. And if you talk to the, to the CEOs of the food companies privately, mm-hmm. they acknowledge that this is the case. 85% of the portfolio of, the portfolios of the big pr- uh, processed food companies are food that is deemed by the WHO, World Health Organization, to be too unhealthy to feed to children. So... It's just this junk food cycle has just swamped us with the food that makes us sick. And if you're going to, you know, willpower and exercise is not going to get us out of that problem. The exercise claim is it it was kind of new to me. I'd I'd heard the claim before that um, losing weight isn't a matter of calories in versus calories out. That idea is kind of skewed. Um, but this ex- this idea that exercise isn't a solution to losing weight, I think some people will find to be surprising. Um, can you explain why that's the case? So the amount of weight you put on or lose is absolutely related to how much calories in, calories out. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, over your lifetime, without thinking about it, most people, even those who become overweight, obese, over their lifetime... They have regulated their weight with mm. incredible sophistication. You know, you, without thinking about it, you remain rough. Actually, people do generally remain roughly the same weight. We all have kind of set point weight. So what is going on is on one side of the equation, you have your appetite. And your appetite is incredibly uh, resistant to you trying to eat less food than you want it want you to eat it so it'll make you hungry it'll make you seek out food if you don't eat food one day it'll make you hungry the next day it'll ensure that you get those you know an average male 3,000 calories a day daily and uh, you know uh, it'll make you behave in ways that make sure you you get at least that now the interesting thing is that the exercise out so the, the, the energy spent. So people had rightly said, you know, one Mars, but you had to exercise a long way a long, for a long time to get rid of one extra chocolate bar, which is true. But there's something more sophisticated going on. So you can now, in the old days, to work out exactly how much energy you burned, you'd have to wear a hood that measured the amount of carbon dioxide coming out versus what went in because energy burning literally the amount of carbon dioxide you produce can tell you exactly how much energy you burnt mm-hmm. but obviously you can't give people hoods as they walk around their daily lives it's impossible so no one really knew what was going on they now have a thing called the doubly labeled water method where they give you water that is doped for heavy hydrogen and heavy oxygen 
And this enables you to see exactly because you sweat out water, but you exhale carbon dioxide. So hydrogen leaves your body in two ways. This enables you to see exactly what is going on, exactly how much energy someone spends over a week, a day, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And the extraordinary thing they found is that where the, the Chicago kind of uh, sedentary office worker in Chicago actually spends exactly the same amount of energy as hunter-gatherers on average. You know, um, our Aboriginal populations who move into city jobs spend the most, you know, the, the same amount of energy. So people are like, what's going on here? They, they assumed that it was additive. So you have your base metabolism mm. and then you exercise. And the sum of those two things is your energy expenditure. So if I go for a run or a walk, that will burn an extra X calories. Mm. But actually, because again, your body is a complex system, it appears that it's not additive. So if you run uh, you know, a long period every day, over a period of weeks, if you become more active, your body will reduce your total energy expenditure mm. because it's not, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, it can't be, if you think in evolutionary terms, it can't guarantee that it gets the food, so it doesn't want to allow you to spend 4,000, 5,000 calories a day, so it reduces the energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly how. There are a couple of theories, and probably both are true. So one is subconsciously you become much less active when you're not exercising, mm -hmm. so you don't twitch. Uh, you just sit more still in your seat, all that kind of stuff, but also that it stops spending money on the two big expenditures, and money being energy, mm -hmm. um, which are uh, reproduction and your immune system. Right. So this is a theory about why athletes often, often get sick because they're spending less and less energy building up their immune system. The other theory that might turn out to be the case, the flip side of this, is that if you're very sedentary, you will spend more on your... So your body thinks, okay, I don't need to exercise. I'm going to boost my immune system and my reproductive system. And there is a theory that this is... The, that we're doing that to such a degree that this is one of the reasons why we have reproductive cancers and uh, diseases of inflammation because we're overheating by not exercising. We're overheating our immune system and our reproductive system. That's fascinating. And is this all an argument then? Because, I mean, if, if you're listening to this thinking well, what can I do? Like, well, I, I want to change my body weight, but yeah. there's nothing I can do. No, I think there is. There are things you can do. So people say, oh my God, you know, this is... Because just to be clear, crash dieting, you're not a fan of that. I'm not a fan of crash dieting. Well, crash dieting, you know, you can lose weight, but it is, you're likely, very, very likely to put it back on again. Yeah. And there is quite a lot of evidence to show that you will be hungrier your appetite, you'll be hungrier, you'll, your body will want more energy afterwards. And in fact, not just you. So there's fascinating experience. During the, the Danish famine in the, in the Second World War, the, the health system was kept intact. And so they have really good records, the Hunger Winter it was known as, they have really good records for all the children and the families who went through that famine. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the children who were in their mother's wombs, uh, while they were starving versus the children who were either born afterwards mm -hmm. or before, the children who were, who were starved in the womb go on to be more obese in later life. So the body in the womb gets a message that says mm. food is scarce when you, you know, when you can eat, eat. Mm -hmm. So the question then is what can you do as an individual? And, you know, I use as the kind of, I like to use a metaphor, like we live in a swamp 
right? It's hard to live in a swamp. So good on you. If you're managing, that's great. This is hard. But we should still people teach people swamp craft, like how to live in a swamp, just because it's hard, we shouldn't give up. And I think that there are um, two things that I would suggest that people that change the way they think about it. The first is don't manage calories, manage appetite. Mm -hmm. So you cannot beat your appetite. You cannot be hungry all the time. So it is clearly the case that foods that are high in fiber, insoluble fiber, uh, that are cooked from scratch, make you eat less than processed foods that are highly energy dense. And mm -hmm. Kevin Hall's famous study is the one where he's an American physicist. And we use that in the book where he fed a diet of ultra processed food versus a, of processed food, soft, um, you know, you know the stuff, soft and mushy, mm -hmm. uh, and a diet of food cooked from scratch to volunteers who were ma made to wear loose fitting clothes <laughs> so that they couldn't tell if they were losing weight. And the ones, when they were eating the food cooked from scratch, their hunger hormones were down, their satiety hormones were up, uh, and they, they lost a kilo mm. in the four weeks. Whereas when they ate the processed food, they put on a kilo. So the first thing is, think about your appetite. And if you eat a diet that is rich in uh, veg, fibrous veg, green veg, low in processed food, um, even if you don't lose weight, you will be much healthier. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, think of exercise as something completely separate from weight loss. So the problem with exercise being billed as a way of making you lose weight is that people go to the gym, they exercise like mad, they don't lose weight and they give up. Mm -hmm. So just realize that exercise is, if you find the enjoyable way to do it, just fantastically good for almost every mental and physical, every mental and physical health risk, exercise is brilliant and enjoy it for that. And if you enjoy your health, like uh, 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 exercise like that, and you, um, and you eat a diet that is high rich in, in vegetables and high in fiber, etc. then even if you don't lose weight, you will feel better mentally, you'll look more toned, you'll look healthier, your skin will look better, and you will be, you will be much healthier. So that's the advice I would give to people is think about appetite, not calories, and managing your appetite. And that can also go like realizing the things to stay away from. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't have any breakfast cereal in our house because it is my, you know, I can literally eat. If I have a box of shreddies in the house, I can subconsciously eat a box without knowing before. So I'm aware of the things that my body just goes, I'll have that. So be aware of your appetite and, and exercise and separate that from diet and just so, do it. So there is it. some uh, personal advice here. <laughs> it's good to find it. But I mean, broadly, we're talking about changing the swamp, not you know, that yeah, from a government habits. point of view, yeah. we need to we need to clean up the swamp. I don't want to use the word drain the swamp, but you <laughs> you want to clean, you need to clean up the swamp. Yeah, they need to. At the moment, the incentives, the commercial incentives of, of food companies are creating a pretty horrible mm. environment to try to live in. It is hard to live in that environment, particularly if you're poor. And you touched on this earlier, where it seems that food companies have, um, I guess, what sociologists would call a kind of collective action problem where they can't change the food that they're producing because their competitors will stay the same, will produce the, the kind of addictive, calorific food, the processed food that our bodies, you say, from an evolutionary perspective, kind of crave. So an, an, an individual company 
can't really make the changes, right? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, particularly if you're publicly owned. I think family-owned businesses mm. with a longer-term perspective can kind of think about that more carefully. But, you know, I had the, the CEO of one of the big food companies who'd just become CEO in the UK, and he came up to me and said, what can I do? And I said, well, you can do a lot on environment, actually, but I think you're pretty... I, I don't think there is much you can do on health. Mm-hmm. You know, if you move first you'll get fired. And in fact, the CEO, this is on the environmental side, but the CEO of Danone recently did get fired because the shareholders said, stop doing all this sustainable stuff. We want cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think they are trapped. The food industry is trapped. I think they could occasionally not be wicked. So, uh, you know, recently um, Nestle launched a Kit Kat cereal and regardless of whether, which is a quarter sugar, had <laughs> a quarter sugar, whether or not you think, what you think about that, uh, they had then they branded it uh, on the on the website. It said "tasty and nutritious" with a star on, mm-hmm. and the nutritious um, said, "you know, contains added vitamins." And I got a text from a very senior industry person. He said, "I know why they've done that. Their their mission is to be the leading supplier of nutritious food to the world. So they had to call it nutritious, or it wouldn't be on mission." And then look on the back of the box as well. You'll see that the, the portion size is 30 grams. And most portion sizes on cereal are 40 grams. And the supermarket research says that we pour ourselves between 50 and 80 grams. Yeah, if you I'd look, be having half a box of that. Yeah, if you yeah. look at it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So what I would say to, to the food industry is you are stuck, but don't be actively wicked. That, that's just wrong. Sure. Um, but the, the the what you're trying to hit home is is it's it's the government who really have to. Yeah, and I, I actually think you know in the national food strategy, which the book was based mm-hmm. on, we focused on how you how you break the commercial incentive restricting advertising, reformulation taxes. But I think we might go the other way. So the nature of the cycle of the junk food cycle is that it is an interaction between appetite and the commercial incentives of companies. And we're now seeing the first of what will be a huge wave of appetite-suppressant drugs. Wagovi, Zempic are both brand names for a drug called semaglutide. That reproduces the impact of GLP-1, one of the hormones that I was talking about from the Kevin Hall study that makes you feel full. And it makes people eat less. Yeah. And, uh, and I can see a world in which the government doesn't fix the underlying problem Mm-hmm. which is the swamp, they just drug us all to be immune to it. Uh, already, the Steve Barclay, the health secretary, has asked his civil servants to pr- provide him with an assessment of how much it would cost to get 12 million people onto this drug. And you had to be on it for life. As soon as you stop taking it, mm-hmm. you, you, that's it. And, and that, to me, is deeply worrying because for, for two reasons. First of all, there will inevitably be tail effects. When we get a drug that has been tested on a few thousand and you give it to millions, mm-hmm. as we saw with the vaccine, you'll have small effects that may well scare people. Mm-hmm. And if you have a BMI of over 35, kind of severely obese, and you've been sick all your life from the food you eat, this drug may actually be the least bad thing you can do. It might change your life. And so we don't want to scare the people who really need mm-hmm. it. But at the same time... You know, we know from, and the book is all about systems and what happens when you intervene in systems. There's a lot of kind of examples of how systems interventions go wrong. We know that if you try and do one thing, if you take a hormone that, is, that has evolved through random mutation 
over millions of years and has therefore has many jobs in the body and replace it with a chemical alternative, something else is going to go wrong down the, down the line. So again, a bit like, you know, Borlaug solving just yield per hectare. Right. If you just hack that one hormone, it's going to, you know, it's going to cause trouble. Mm. I think you handle that issue really well in the book because just like you did there, you kind of say, well, look, these drugs for some people will be really important. Um, but used as a solution to these much more broader systemic issues, it's it, it might not be the solution we we actually need. Yeah, I got a friend who's you know, I, uh, who, and when I was writing about it, I rang her up and said, "What do you think about it?" And she said, "On one hand, it's a bit sad because I don't enjoy food. Or she used to love food. I don't enjoy food as much. One of the things about this drug is that can make you feel a bit nauseous and really not not really enjoy your food very much. But on the other hand." My life isn't blighted. And she said, you know, we live in a depressing world and it's okay to take antidepressants. I live in this world where I find it hard to be healthy, so I'm going to take this drug. And, you know, I, it's hard on an individual level. It's quite hard to argue with that logic. She is, she has tried. I've known her for a long time. She's tried everything mm -hmm. and it's been a misery to her. But that doesn't mean that that is the solution for everyone. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to climate change um, briefly. So lots, we hear uh, when we when we talk about food, the food system, and climate change, often the focus is methane. I get the impression from your book that methane is a bit of a red herring when it comes to climate change. So if that is true, I mean maybe you can clarify this. But if that is true, in what way is the food system a leading cause of climate change? So um, I mentioned earlier that the animals we eat weigh twenty times as much as all wild animals. And on the kind of environment and climate front, you can basically look, look at it like this. For, for pretty much the whole of human civilization until late 18th, 19th century, we produced everything we needed from the, from the action of sunlight on the land, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then we used the water wheel for some things, but, but basically it was the action of sunlight on the land. And that gave us the clothes we wore, our energy, the food we ate so on and so forth. And then we discovered this millions of years of stored up sunlight in the form of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, the land was really was required for much less. It was, you know, just required really to produce food. And in fact, 2% of greenhouse gas emissions are fertilizer. So we would even use that stored sunlight to turbocharge the food we ate. And we now realize that we can't rely on that um, on on that stored sunlight anymore. So we have an equation solved. We have to, from the same amount of land, produce enough food to feed us, restore biodiversity, because that is as big a problem as climate change, and we need always to think of those two things as as one. Like, don't try and solve one or the other. You need to solve both. And sequester carbon. So the question is, can you do that off the amount of land that we have? Mm -hmm. And the answer is you can, but we need to reduce waste. And we talk about waste not only in terms of the food we literally throw away, which everyone knows about it, but inefficient use of land. And the most inefficient way in which we use land is rearing meat. 85% of the land that we use to feed the UK is used either to graze animals or to grow feed to feed to animals. Mm -hmm. That is 
an extraordinarily inefficient way to feed people. And people will say, okay, well, I agree with you on the food crops. We should be eating more of those. But pasture, you know, that's, we're, we're great at growing grass. This country is great at growing grass. Uh, and like, yes, it is. But you have to think about what else you could be using that land for. Mm. You know, you could be using it to sequester carbon, restore biodiversity, growth, woods, etc. And if you look at the, just taking the carbon side of it, if you look at the overall carbon gain from eating less ruminant meat, mm -hmm. the gain that you get from using the land for other things using the land to, to store carbon is much greater than the gain you get from methane reduction. So everyone's talking about methane, and actually that is important, but actually land is the most important thing, how we use our land. Can you clarify that? Because methane, the reason people talk about methane production is because as a greenhouse gas, it's however many times more potent than carbon, right? Yeah. Um, so why shouldn't we really worry about it? Well, we, sh we should as well. So methane is it's a peculiar uh, greenhouse gas in that it uh, it reacts with hydroxyls which are charged oxygen hydrogen pairs in the atmosphere and, and turns into carbon dioxide or a complicated series of actions turns into carbon dioxide and and water as you said it is much much more potent than carbon dioxide at, at any one time mm -hmm. which is why when it turns into carbon dioxide you can kind of it's, it becomes a rounding equation mm -hmm. So roughly over 12 years, all of the methane, any given bit of methane in the atmosphere will disappear. So what this means is if you have, say, a herd of cows, um, if you don't grow that herd, their, their effect on, on global warming will remain static. It's not like a, if you have a herd of cows standing in the same field as a, as a power station the power station will go on forever, mm -hmm. increasing global warming. The herd of cows will not. It will maintain. In fact, if you slaughtered that herd of cows, after 12 years, their warming effect would have gone. Mm -hmm. So methane, which actually means, interestingly, that reducing methane is one of the few things we could do to put a quick break on global warming, um, reducing the amount of uh, animals we can actually act as a cooling effect. The only thing that can act as a cooling effect so it is important, that is all important, but it just, that effect, even if you were to remove all, if you were to say remove overnight, remove all ruminants from the planet, mm -hmm. uh, after 12 years, it would be as if they had never existed, as if mm -hmm. their methane had never been emitted. But the constant ongoing sequestration from the land that, that had replaced them would be much greater than just that bit of methane uh was in the past that's that's why mm -hmm. it's complicated and funny enough interestingly a lot of meat farmers now are seizing on this to say um th this means we can we don't need to worry so much we can we can reduce meat later because it doesn't matter it, it, you know uh, when you reduce them the the, the the methane reduces and the one thing i'd say to that is the peak matters Mm -hmm. So if you look at reducing both methane and carbon dioxide together quickly, uh, you get, uh, you know, carbon dioxide, uh, global warming comes to a certain level. If you do methane late, the global warming go up and then come back to the same level. But what you don't know is at that peak, mm -hmm. what systems affect that's going to cause. 
So you don't want to risk going, for example, to 2.5 and then back down to 2, because we've got no idea what could happen in terms of um, domino effects from getting up to 2.5. There's a chapter in your book on alternative proteins. Um, so we're talking about lab-grown meat, but also things like corn or whatever. Um, and it's interesting because this is the point at which, unlike other parts in your book, where the, your concerns over public health and your concerns over the environment start to come into, come into conflict. And um, I, I suppose I'll put it to you, just can alternative proteins be part of the solution when they are a quote-unquote ultra-processed food? So, yes, the question is the solution to what? So every, there is no simple answer, you know, in the same way that someone says, uh, you know, should, what kind of meat should I eat less of? Mm. And it's like the answer is what do you care about? If you care about animal welfare, I'd probably start with battery chicken or, or pork. If you care about the um, environmental impact, I'd start with lamb, you know, so mm. nothing is simple. We have, and there are, so there are three kinds, broadly speaking, of these alternative proteins. Uh, one is just vegetables, uh, which are made to, to taste like uh, meat. And the Impossible Burger is a good example. They're full of, if you look at the, the, you know, to do that is quite complicated. Mm -hmm. The list on the back is f kind of, you know, 48 ingredients, full of, proce completely processed. The second is fermented proteins, like corn, but they're now genetically modifying bacteria to create all sorts of different proteins. Mm -hmm. And then the third is lab-grown meat, which is literally getting stem cells to uh, and, and growing them into meat in a bioreactor, which looks like a, looks like a kind of big water-containing um, Like thing. the bath that Neo was born yeah, in in the Matrix. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it, looks, it looks exactly like the thing that Neo was born in the Matrix. Um, the stuff that they are producing now where it is kind of gaining traction tends to be junk food, burgers, mm -hmm. bacon, you know, that kind of thing. And it, its nutritional profile tends to be pretty similar, often slightly better, but, you know, it is replicating food that is high in fat mm -hmm. and high in salt, and therefore it's high in food, fat and high in salt. And a lot of people say, you know, why can't we just go straight to lentils or chickpeas, which actually... That, you know, you say there isn't one answer. Mm -hmm. If you could get everyone to do it, the answer is like... Pulses. Pulses is the, <laughs> is the answer, basically. I might get on a T-shirt. Pulses is the answer. Pulses and green vegetables. That's it. That is the answer. Yeah. But, but we, you know, at the moment, we have two problems. We have a, a diet that is 57% processed food. And we have... Uh, uh, we eat a lot of meat... 50% of that is in processed foods, kind of in mints, and that is hurting the environment. And the argument that we make is we don't have time to get everyone eating pulses and chickpeas. We need to use the fact that we have this very processed diet to reduce our environmental in, in, input or out, output, environmental harms, at the same time as trying to improve the health of the diet. So, and a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. Some people like it. I just don't think, you know, people who say, well, why can't we move to, you know, we should just move to all whole, whole food diets. We shouldn't be getting involved in this stuff. And I kind of understand that, but I just don't think it's going to happen. And I don't think we've got, I don't think we've got the luxury of going to the perfect answer. Mm. 
I think when we covered this previously on the podcast, uh, one of the perspectives on this that I found uh, compelling is that from a global perspective, meat consumption is increasing. And who are we to turn around to parts of the global south and say, I'm sorry, you know, you've seen all the adverts from McDonald's, but you can't have your chicken nuggets anymore. You can't have uh, your uh, red meat anymore. Like we did it, but you can't. And I think insofar as processed um, alternative proteins can play a role in fulfilling that demand then i think that's you know a reasonable way yeah i mean it's interesting one of the opt and, and there are there are other places in the world who eat so little meat that it is nutritionally sure. problematic who need to eat more meat or or get that nutrition elsewhere the um the thing funny enough that is kind of optimistic side is if you look at meat the increase in meat eating in China, Brazil, and India, which are the three big economies where we're really worried that if, you know, you can look at the amount of meat per, you know, correlated to personal income Mm -hmm. that countries eat. And if their income continues to increase and they continue to increase their meat eating in line with our averages, that is really problematic. But actually it does seem in those countries the overall meat consumption seems to be flattening off suggesting that it's possible that they might not go they might go straight to a place where they don't eat as much meat as we did okay. in the kind of same way that they went straight to mobile phones rather than had fixed lines there's so that is kind of one little bit of optimistic data is that they might have learned from our excesses but you know we don't know yet that's interesting um changing track again completely and maybe starting to round off this interview i'm just i, I know that you were um You've been a supporter of Brexit, and I know that to some extent that this national food strategy that um, you led on and forms kind of the backbone of this book, I feel like that was kind of mandated in in a kind of spirit of taking back control of our food system, essentially, yeah. in the UK. Um, do you feel disheartened now over Brexit, given that uh, some of this um, attempt to take back control of things like our food system hasn't really gone to plan? Yeah, I mean, funny enough... Um you know that not because I've ever told anyone how I voted, but because <laughs> well, I did. I told I told I told one person. Okay, I, I, I just know that from uh, no, 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 no. I, I think I think it, I think it's no, no. I think it's right. I, I've actually so I thought uh, I told one person. They went on Twitter and they started attacking me for it. But actually, I think it's right. You know, if you do a strategy, people because it is so interlinked with sure. food. And I think you know, I was I was not a kind of Brexit campaigner at all. I just thought on balance. I was one of the sovereignty people who felt that sovereignty was more important than than globalism. Mm-hmm. There's there's a um, fantastic Harvard economist called Danny Roderick who kind of points out you can have you know any two of globalization, democracy, and sovereignty, and I I chose democracy and sovereignty over globalization. But what has become clear to me since is that while I was just a voter, the people who were campaigning for Brexit did not have a view on what it was. And so what you've had is this extraordinary thing of you have the kind of liberal conservatives, the people who were the globalization people. It's all about free markets, Singapore on Thames, da 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 da, da. And then complete, almost completely the opposite. You had the people who, like me, were about sovereignty and democracy, about you know supporting our own industries, about creating you know support creating trade barriers if you needed to to protect farmers and you can see that playing out in the food 
space. So if you look at the government's policy on food, you at one point had Michael Gove and George Eustace trying to create a kind of future farming system that was environmentally sustainable, that restored biodiversity, etc. And then at the same time, Liz Truss going around the world doing trade deals that that were ideologically completely inconsistent with that approach. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, you know, Brexit basically has a sucked up just huge, whatever whatever side of it you were, is clearly just sucked up so much political energy Mm -hmm. from this country. But also, it is still not clear amongst those who campaign for it, whether which of those two visions is what we're trying to achieve. And weirdly, that is is hardly ever discussed. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, that would be my view. I mean, funny enough, the food area and farming was the one area that if you got, you know, everyone from George Monbiot on one side to Michael Gove on the other thought that the one area of upside from Brexit would be the farming transition because everyone agreed the common agricultural policy was an environmentally an environmental disaster. So actually, in terms of kind of my work, uh, you didn't really need to have a view either way because, you know, the, the reason why I used the word opportunity was because of the common agricultural policy. We had this opportunity to... And we're still actually doing... I think there is a chance that what we're doing on on agriculture will, if we get it right, seem to be world-leading, although I sense at the moment slightly that we might be... Mm. It's a bit too hard. We might be slightly regressing on it. It's quite similar to the view that uh, someone else I interviewed called Jerry Percy, who's a fisherman and a fishing advocate, has, has where he feels that also kind of let down by the Conservative government. Nevertheless, he feels it was necessary to kind of gain some control over um, our rights in, in our fishing waters. But putting that to one side, I guess I would say, um, I guess my final question is, how do you feel now? Do you feel optimistic about where we're going? Do you feel like there is opportunities to change our food system? What's your kind of outlook? Yeah, so I think if I look at the two parts of it, so if I look at the, I, and I think that they, while we told a story about both of them, and there are, as you say, some areas such as changing diet, which you need to do for both. Mm-hmm. change the diet to eat more veg, less meat. You know, we need to have 30... For our health, we need to have 30% more vegetables, 50% more fibre. For the environment, we need to have 30% less meat by 2030. Actually, a lot of them, they're quite separate in the ways that you do them. And I am quite optimistic on the environmental stuff and on the agricultural transition. I think it's... There are... It's hugely complicated, but I do feel that both parties fundamentally have bought into the transition. The Lib Dems um, seem to be a bit more keep it as it is. So if there's a hung parliament, that might be a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm optimistic there. On health, we've gone backwards. So we're in a really interesting situation now on health where, you know, we had our... We had, you know, a record-breaking number of people with type 2 diabetes just three weeks ago. We had the the news, the bad news on health comes thick and fast. And actually, I sense that really even in the last six months, all parties have seen that they're going to need to do something about it. But there is this, you know, in the Labour Party, there is, you hear we're streeting just talking a little, talking about prevention, but then talking a little bit nervously about nanny state, red wall, are the Tories going to be able to cast us as the the, the nannies? And you, you sense just a little bit of 
nervousness there. And obviously in the Tory party, you have the people who were brought up uh, by nannies who um, who don't want the state to get involved in anything like that. So, but but I think we might be in the same way that 10 years ago, it was legitimate to have, you could, there was a debate being had in uh, public discourse about whether climate change, man-made climate change was really happening. And that is no longer a debate that is had insensible. All those people now argue, how big is it? What's the right way to t- tackle it? I get a sense with health, diet related ill health, that we might be at a point where pretty soon, where at least it becomes uh, impossible to deny that there is something going wrong between the commercial incentives of companies and our appetite, and that is the fundamental reason. And that would be a big step because to change systems, Mm -hmm. the first thing you have to do is change the way people understand. Once people understand how they work, that is necessary. It's not sufficient to get change, but that is necessary. Um, There's so much in this book that I feel like we've only just scratched the surface on. So I totally recommend reading it. It's called Ravenous. It's co-authored with Jemima Lewis, who is your wife, I believe. Yes, she is. She she edited both of... I I did some work called The School Food Plan for Government in 2013 and The National Food Strategy. She edited both those hours and hours unpaid. And her greatest genius is just forcing you to be clear. So she kept saying... What do you actually mean by that? And actually you realise that if you... We, we tried to write it so an intelligent 12-year-old would, would be able to understand it, and I reckon it's a pretty good rule of thumb that if you can't just explain something to an intelligent 12-year-old, it's because you don't understand it your, yourself. Yeah, I mean, it certainly worked. It's a super clear, super interesting book. Um, it came out in March uh, this year, and it's out with Profile Books, so do go and get it. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for appearing thank on you. the show. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>